Amen. Well, good morning. It is uh, sincerely, I mean this. I know that maybe uh, when preachers say, like, it's a joy to be with you, I'm glad to be with you, they could be lying to you. Um, I'm not. I am sincerely excited to be here, glad to be here. Uh, it is something that I was looking forward to all week. Um, my name is Matt Hodges. I'm the teaching pastor over at the other Risen Church, Risen Church uh, Northwest. And um, I have the honor of preaching to you guys this morning. Uh, our text today is uh, one that comes from a series that we're actually in over there. We're walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We had a huddle beforehand with the team, and I was saying we're, we're crawling through the Sermon on the Mount. We started this uh, many, many months ago, and we are almost to the end of chapter 5. So we're, we're making our way through. But um, this was a text that I got to preach on recently uh, and excited to preach it here uh, because I think that it is a needed one for us in our day and age, in our context. Um, and it comes from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. And I just want to read it to you guys. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, and then we'll walk through it and see what Jesus has for us this morning as our King. He says, starting in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is God's word. Um, I recently had the chance to go up to the Northeast. Uh, we went to Martha's Vineyard with my wife's family, and it was wonderful, most notably just because you could be outside and enjoy being outside. And that was just what you wanted to do. It didn't really matter what the activity was. It didn't matter what you had planned for the day. It was, hey, we're going to walk out the door, enjoy being not inside, and then go back inside at the end of the day when it's time to go to bed. That was something that we don't get to enjoy in these months here in Houston. So that in and of itself was wonderful. The other excellent bonus of being up there on the coast of Massachusetts was the seafood. It was glorious. And I know we're here in Houston. We're like, no, we know seafood. Not like this. Lobster up there, clam chowder. Actually, I preached this uh, recently at our church, and I was corrected. You don't say chowder. Uh, you say chowda. Apparently, to pronounce the end of that word is uh, very incorrect to someone who's from Boston, but it was phenomenal. However, there was one component of the seafood that I just do not understand, and it was everywhere, and it was popular, and people would walk into restaurants just for this, and that is oysters. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't get the appeal of it. Look, and if you want to use your Christian freedom, your freedom in Christ to eat giant boogers, then like, <laughs> by all means, you are free in Christ to do that. But I don't get why it's a thing. I did, however, learn something cool about oyster and oyster fishing, oyster fishermen, and that is that the number one nemesis of oyster fishermen are starfish. Starfish love oysters. So if you love oysters, you and starfish have the same developed taste buds. Congratulations. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 
Every time an oyster fisherman would see a starfish in their nets or see it in the water or see it stuck to their boats or what have you, they would want to get rid of it. And it was kind of morbid the way they did it until you learned the end of the story, but they would just take the starfish, break it in half, and toss it back into the water. And they're like, problem solved. That starfish is no longer going to eat our oyster catch. Here's a fun fact about starfish, though. Starfish can regenerate. From only even one of their legs, they can completely regenerate. So what the oyster fishermen thought they were doing was reducing the starfish population. What they were, in fact, doing was doubling it exponentially. Every single time, they would crack a starfish, toss it back into the water. There's two new things that are now going to eat their oysters. And the next time they would do it, there's two new things that are now going to eat their oysters. And what this did was it created a vicious cycle. The, star, the starfish would eat the oysters. The fishermen were mad about the starfish eating the oysters, so they would break the starfish, toss it back. Now all of a sudden there's more starfish eating more oysters, which made the fishermen more mad. They would get more diligent about trying to find the starfish and break them and toss them back and so on and so forth until you have a feedback loop of basically retaliation. The fishermen are out to get the starfish. The starfish say, hey, sorry, not sorry. We can regenerate and in turn eat more oysters. And so the cycle continues. And I, when I learned this, I thought, man, if that is not the most poignant parable for just what all retaliation does, Anytime we retaliate, we perpetuate a cycle. Someone wrongs me, so I wrong them back, and they, of course, then have to wrong me back, and then I have to wrong them back, and so on and so forth. And it usually escalates. And this is exactly the kind of cycle that Jesus is trying to break in this text. This is exactly the issue that he is going after when he teaches on this. He starts off by quoting, as he does often in the Sermon on the Mount, something from the Mosaic Law. He says, you have heard that it was said, and then quotes Exodus when he says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was from Exodus chapter 21. This was something that the Jewish people would have been very familiar with as a part of their law. It says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, this command is often misunderstood. This command often is taken as encouraging retaliation, but that's not actually what it was. It actually was put in place to restrict retaliation. See, this command by Moses, through Moses, by God, to the Israel people was basically just to the judges of Israel, and it was for the legal system. It was saying, hey, when there's a crime make sure that the punishment fits that crime. Because what the person who is sinned against wants to do is go and retaliate, and they're usually going to escalate it. So this was kind of like a tempering of retaliation. Make sure that the punishment fits the crime. But even this was not God's full and flourishing design for humanity. Even this is not the picture of what God wants in perfect shalom. And so when Jesus shows back up onto the scene and says, hey, we are launching a new creation here. I am restoring the world back to the harmony that it enjoyed in the garden. 
I'm taking you back to the way that you were meant to operate in God's presence and with one another. And that is a world where there's no retaliation. There's no payback. There's no vengeance. There is no punishment because there is no crime. And boy, do we see the need for this in the world around us today. If something, if you could just describe what marks our society, it's they did it first, right? They did it first. I have to do this because they did this, because they are like this, because this person did this first, because if I don't, then they might. Sometimes we need preemptive retaliation. But that's what we justify, all of our actions. And it has seeped down into the fabric of our society, in fact, one sociologist named Jonathan Haidt, I love him, he uh, wrote a book recently called The Coddling of the American Mind, highly commend it to you, it is phenomenal. And basically what he does is he tracks these trends to say, how did we get here? How do we get to where we are in our world where things are so incendiary, so out of control, so volatile, and he distills these truths, these threads down, and one of them, at the most basic fundamental level, of all of our society is the belief that your actions justify mine. Whatever I do, it is justified because you did it first or you did something to warrant it. And it is actually not only my license, but my responsibility to retaliate or to do something back. In 2017, on the campus of UC Berkeley, a massive riot broke out, causing over $500,000 in damage. Fireworks were shot into buildings. Students were carrying around Molotov cocktails and pepper spray. Many people were physically injured. And it, when the story broke, all these psychologists and sociologists were like, okay, what is going on here? How does a group of 18, 19-year-old students who were just previously studying for a biology test now wind up with masks and Molotov cocktails? And so they asked, all right, why? And basically, the number one thing that came out of that was this belief. Students had come to believe that violence is justified in response to speech that is hateful. And students of then opposing political views look to incite that violence by intentionally inviting speakers who use that kind of speech. Do you see the cycle? Hey, what you said or what that person said, I didn't like, and so I'm going to be violent in response. Oh, you're going to be violent in response, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to go find more people to say things that you don't like, and that's going to incite more violence, and then that's going to incite more speech, and that's going to incite more violence, and so on and so forth. And this, is, this was obviously it coming to a head, but it's not hard to see. My actions are justified because they did it first. Any of the parents in the room who have or have had small children know this refrain well. He hit me first. Why did you push your brother down the stairs? Well, because he took my toy. Now, that's not really, doesn't really line up. We don't have stairs, thankfully. That would, that would happen in our house for sure. Why'd you push your brother out of the swing? Well, because I wanted to turn and he wouldn't get out. That, one, that one's a little more close to home. Whatever they did first justified my actions. And so by and large, we are running around like a bunch of two-year-olds saying, 
He hit me first. They lied first. They insulted first. They wronged me first. They cheated first. They were dishonest first. And so I then have to do it back. And Jesus is saying, once again, like he does all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the world may run like this, but in my kingdom we do not. The world may operate with this MO, but in my kingdom we do not. We are going to be a counterculture. And he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So if you say, well, he hit me first, the response is not to hit back. The response is to turn the other cheek. Maybe my favorite example of this, of someone actually being struck on the cheek, is the story of a guy named Billy Bray. Billy Bray was a British evangelist, but before he was an evangelist, he was actually a very accomplished boxer. And as is the case with very accomplished boxers, when you have a disagreement with them, when you have a discrepancy, when you have something that you don't like about them, that's on you to handle. That's not something that you go and like take to Billy and let him know, uh, because Billy, before he was a Christian, would settle his disputes as did accomplished boxers who weren't Christians. And so Billy also worked in the mines. And then after Billy converted to Christianity, one of the people who had one of these disagreements with Billy, didn't like Billy for some reason, learned, hey, I heard that Christians are supposed to turn the other cheek. I heard that Christians can't hit back. And in a very bold testing of this hypothesis, he ran up and he sucker punched Billy right in the face. And Billy did not do what Billy was well equipped to do in response and what Billy would have done before meeting Jesus. Instead, what Billy said was, may God forgive you even as I have forgiven you. Now, this actually ended up so mentally tormenting the guy who had hit him that a couple days later, he gave his life to Jesus because it was so radical. It was so countercultural. It didn't make any sense. How could I run up and just deck this guy who absolutely could put me in my place? And he just says, I forgive you. Billy turned the other cheek, quite literally. Now, for most of us, though, I don't think that the application is every time we physically get struck in the face. Like, if that's just a common thing for you, if you're just around getting sucker punched, let's chat. Like, I even, I, I'd love to chat. We can find someone, like another leader here. We just need to find some different circles, some different life rhythms for you to, to run in. However, I think most of us can say we're wronged pretty frequently Someone does harm us in some way. Someone does strike us, maybe with their words, their actions, their attitude. So the question still remains, how does a Christian respond when wronged, when we are sinned against, when someone does something wrong to us, how do we respond? And Jesus is saying, Hey, if someone strikes you with their words, you do not verbally strike back. 
If someone insults you, you do not insult them back. If someone emotionally wounds you, you do not try to emotionally wound them back. If someone wrongs you, offends you, slights you in any way, you do not retaliate. You absorb the blow. And then, as if he hadn't already lost his audience with that, Jesus then goes and ups the ante. Because then he says that the way in his kingdom is not only to absorb the blow, but then to actually respond with kindness. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, he says, go get your tunic back. No. Let him have your cloak as well. What? And if anyone forces you to go one mile, all right, go your mile, don't do it begrudgingly, and then you're out of there. He says, no, then offer to go a second with them. This is the part in the Sermon on the Mount where I feel like there was that like group of people. They were like, all right, we got lunch plans. We're out. Because this doesn't make any sense. This goes against every one of our sensibilities. Someone wrongs us and you're saying, okay, all right, fine. I'm not going to hit back. I'm not going to strike back. I'm not. But now you're saying that I have to actually proactively respond with kindness, with generosity, with more grace. Grace is unmerited favor. I have to show them favor after what they did to me. Am I getting this right, Jesus? So now when someone verbally wounds you, it's not, hey, just don't spew back. It's, oh, you now have a responsibility to be kind in your words. If someone wrongs you, if someone wounds you, if someone offends you, now it's not, hey, just, just hold back. It's, no, no. How can you go serve them? This is hard. Mainly because Jesus just took away our loophole. See, when I was reading this and I was studying, I was like, no, this is fine. I got a loophole. You don't want me to hit back? I can do that. But guess what? I'm not going to hit back because I'm going to be way over there. I just avoid them. Can't hit back if you're not around them. Can't hit back if you just have some space. Can't hit back if they're not in your life. Someone wounds me, someone wrongs me, someone offends me. That's cool. I'm going to absorb that blow. And guess what? I won't strike back, but I'm going to need some space. I'll just withdraw. I'll just retreat. Because that's the other natural response, is it not? When presented with conflict, every human being, even down to the physiological level, even down to the chemicals that your brain releases in that moment, what are the two responses? Fight or flight. That's what, you're, that's what you want to do. That's what your body wants to do. That's what your heart wants to do. That's what your mind wants to do. There's conflict. You naturally want to either fight back like full mama bear or ostrich head in the sand. And I'm just not going to deal with it. It's not my problem. I'll just be over there. I can just take it and I'll take my leave and we'll just have peace 
from afar. And we want to flee. And Jesus is going, oh, no, 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 no. You come on back. See, see, in my kingdom, welcome to my kingdom, when someone wrongs us, we neither fight back nor run away. Neither fighting nor fleeing are options for those who are my followers. And this, this is hard. Because this, again, it takes away our out. It takes away the easy, okay. In my kingdom, we respond with love. And so I think we need to take stock. I think you need to ask yourself, sincerely, think about a time recently that you were wronged. I know it's not fun. Someone hurt you. Someone insulted you. Someone offended you. Someone slighted you. What's your tendency in your flesh? Do you you naturally buck up? Or do you naturally run away? Fine, I'll just absorb the blow. I I like to withdraw. It's just, it's easy for me. I'm introvert, lone, I'm so fine by myself. No one to hit back. And Jesus is going, yeah, but how are you going to give your cloak if you're way over there? How are, how are you going to go that second mile with them if you're way over there? So what is it? What stirs up in you? Is my natural tendency to fight or is my natural tendency to flee? Do I need to be less reactive? Do I need to control my urge to, to strike back in a way? Or do I need to be more proactive? Do I need to not withdraw and come get along for that second mile. Now, I think if I were able to survey kind of how y'all are just feeling about this, my guess is, is most of the answer would be some version distilled down into, I don't like it. I don't like it. Who is this guy? Why is he here? Why is he preaching this? We were having a great time in our series. This is, why did Jesus have to say that? I recognize the same faces that I saw at my church when I did this too. This is hard, guys. This goes against what is in us. There is a natural sense of a need to either retaliate or run away when there is a wrongdoing. This third way that Jesus presents is not natural, but neither is the life that Jesus has called us to. Now, there's a couple reasons for this, and I think that what we need to do if we're going to really understand, okay, how can we be a people that turn the other cheek? How can we be a people that do not run away when someone wrongs us? We need to understand why we want to do those things. Why is it that turning the other cheek or going the second mile is so difficult for us? The first, I actually believe, is a good thing that is just a little bit misdirected and misplaced. The first is our sense of justice. See, we're made in the image of God. God cares about justice. And part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to have his character injected into us. His attributes, what he cares about, what his loves are, what he is concerned with, his nature. He put that, a version of it, an image of it in us. And so we rightly care about justice. 
And when someone wrongs us, we go, injustice. Now, what's going to be my response? Because justice must be done. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12 when he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Just the Pauline twist on turn the other cheek. But here, Paul gives us some theology to back up why we can do that. He says, you don't have to avenge yourself. Why? Because God will. Because God says, vengeance is mine. It's not yours. He took it from us and said, I'm going to cover that. See, it is the image of God in us that wants there to be justice. It's their image of God in us that has a desire to see justice happen. But it is the sin in us that tells us it is always my responsibility to ensure that justice is done. Because God is saying, vengeance is not yours. Vengeance is mine. You can respond with good to evil because I'm not going to let evil go unchecked. And so what happens is, when we're wronged and we retaliate, we are functionally saying to God, God, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you're going to handle it. I don't believe that you got it. I don't believe you. When you say that vengeance is yours, when you say that I don't have to avenge myself, I'm not trusting that. And I am taking on myself what you have said is reserved only for you. But what Romans 12 is telling us is that we can take a great deal of comfort in the fact that we know that every ounce, every millisecond of evil and injustice in the world will be dealt with by God. Specifically, it will either be dealt with on the cross or on judgment day. And that's it. That is the full scope of God's justice and wrath on all evil and sin. It will either all be absorbed by Jesus on the cross or answered by Jesus when he comes back. And so to retaliate, to take it on ourselves, is to say, I don't believe that those things are sufficient. I have to subsidize your justice, God. I have to supplement your justice by retaliating myself, by responding to wrongdoing myself. I don't trust that you will be just, God, so I have to be. The problem is, is that we very much love the idea that the cross is sufficient justice for all of the wrong and sin and evil that we do. That is a great comfort, is it not? That all of our sin, all of our wrongdoing to other people is sufficiently covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. It is propitiated for. And that is a great deal of comfort to us. It should be. But here's the thing. If the cross is sufficient 
for all of the sin that is committed by you, then the cross must be sufficient for all of the sin committed against you. And to believe that you have to retaliate is to say, the cross is sufficient for me, but not for thee. I have to supplement God's justice on the cross with my own actions of vengeance. We must believe that. We will, you will never be able to turn the other cheek if you do not believe in the sufficiency of God's judgment, either on the cross absorbed by Jesus or on judgment day answered by Jesus when he returns. But if we do trust that, if we trust that God does have it and that he makes good on his promise, then we will not feel the need to avenge ourselves. Now, the second reason that we don't want to turn the other cheek and don't want to go the extra mile, second reason we want to retaliate or run away is because turning the other cheek wounds our own pride and our own ego. Here's why. When someone wrongs me, someone does something, someone insults me, someone offends me, that is an accusation against me. It's an accusation that I deserve to be treated that way. It's an accusation that I'm the kind of person that ought to be wronged that way. That I somehow, because of who I am, deserve that kind of treatment. So when someone offends me, it's saying, hey, I, they're saying to me, effectively, I think you're the type of person that should get offended. I think you're the type of person that should be wronged. You deserve this somehow. So every wrongdoing is in some way an accusation against us. And so if we just take it, if we just turn the other cheek, if we just continue serving and continue loving, what it feels like is that we're agreeing with that accusation. We are capitulating to what they have said is true about us, that we somehow deserve to be wrong, that we somehow deserve the treatment that they are showing us. So why we want to fight back is to prove that accusation wrong. No, I don't deserve that, and I have something to say about it. I don't deserve to be treated like that, so I'm going to show you. I'm going to push back against that accusation, against that treatment, because I'm not that kind of person. I don't deserve that. I, that, is, that is unjust. And so we have to fight back. We have to defend ourselves, right? We have to prove our innocence. We have to show them that they are wrong in their treatment of us. I don't deserve to be wronged that way. And if I just turn the other cheek, then it'll seem like I do. It'll seem like they're right. The only way that we can truly turn the other cheek then is that if we believe that our vindication, our innocence, our justification exists outside of what people do to us and independent of how we are treated. We need an identity that does not depend on how people treat us. That's the only answer. 
Because if you are basing your valuation of yourself based on the treatment of others, then you're always going to be trying to fight back. It will just be like one giant game of whack-a-mole for the rest of your life. I don't deserve that. I'm not actually like that. That was wrong. I don't. And it will just perpetuate. And so the only way is to step outside of that and go, hey, independent of anything that anyone does to me, I'm secure in who I am. I know what my identity is. And this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.3, one of my absolute favorite verses in the Bible. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. And I think he's being generous here with the very small thing. Like, I think that's basically, in the Greek, that's basically him saying, I don't care what you think. Why would I? Oh, you think that I'm, I deserve to be treated that way? That's fine. Very small thing indeed. Your opinions? Very small thing indeed. You think, that I, you think that I deserve to be wronged that way? You think that I deserve to be cheated that way? You think that I'm the type of person that needs to be talked to that way? That's fine. That's fine. I don't even care. I don't even care. Now, why can Paul say this? Why is it a very small thing indeed for him to be judged, to be deemed anything? Because Paul's identity was not grounded in what people did to him. It wasn't even, as he says, grounded in anything that he did for himself. It was only grounded in what Christ Jesus had done for him. And because of that, it was untouchable. It was untouchable. So now Paul, totally secure in who he was as a child of God, the world threw everything they could at him. I mean, come on. The, the litany of things that Paul dealt with. Like, I don't know how you come back from, hey, we dragged you outside the city gate and tried to kill you by throwing rocks at you. I think that's about as low as you can get. We're like, okay, apparently people don't like me. I must, like, that's a pretty heavy accusation that you'd want to maybe hit back on. They tried to stone me. And Paul's like, all right, on to the next city because he knew that that wasn't the basis of his value. He knew that wasn't the basis of his identity because he was only, only judged ultimately by what Jesus had done for him. It is only in the gospel that we are vindicated and declared truly righteous in God's sight, independent of anything that anyone does to us independent of anything that we even do for ourselves. And it is only dependent on what Christ Jesus has done for us. That's how we know we're vindicated. And if you're truly vindicated, if you're truly absolved, if you're truly innocent, if you are truly righteous in the eyes of the King of glory, then it doesn't matter what anyone does to you because it's not actually having any bearing. And so you can turn the other cheek. You can go the second mile. Because who you are is now untouchable. And it's exactly the reason why Jesus himself could endure what he endured. 
I mean, Jesus was the only person who never actually deserved to be wronged. We can agree on that. He was the only person for whom every single accusation should not have stuck. He was perfect. There was nothing that any human could do to say, to offend, to wrong, to accuse anything that actually had any grounding in reality. He's the only truly innocent person. And yet, look at what he endured. Standing up there with Pilate before the crowds. I mean, imagine that scene. Imagine you're up there and a crowd of people is saying, crucify him. Crucify him. We want you dead. He could have proved his innocence. Pilate asked him, so are you the king of the Jews? You've said that it's so. Totally secure. Then he goes to the cross, and he's getting mocked, spit on, shamed publicly. The centurions are saying, see, he can't save himself. See, some king you have mockingly putting king of the Jews over his head. The thieves on the cross are saying, come on, Messiah, do something. Get us, get yourself down, save yourself, save us, prove yourself. And he just stays there. Why? Because he knew his vindication was coming. Because when God raised him from the dead that Sunday morning, That was God's declaration over his son. My Messiah is innocent. He did not deserve what happened to him. He is not who you thought he was. He is my son. He is the Christ. And he is the king of the universe. And I have proven that by undoing what you did to him, by raising him from the dead. That has to seep into our bones. Because, man, I'll tell you what, that is not how I would be. In my flesh, I'm up there on, on, like publicly displayed and being accused, and someone's like, come on down, save yourself. Like, okay, fine, what you want? Like, that's in me. Because I feel the need to vindicate myself. I feel the need to prove myself. I feel the need to defend myself. Jesus didn't defend himself because he knew his ultimate defense was right around the corner. And by faith, his vindication becomes our vindication because his resurrection will be our resurrection. And on that day, when God, just like he did his own son, raises you from the dead, crowns you in glory, welcomes you into his presence, That is him saying, they are innocent in my sight because of what my son has done for them. They are my children. And even death itself, the ultimate enemy, the ultimate offender is going to try to say with one final blow, no, this is who you are. You deserve death. You deserve separation from God. And he is going to raise you from the dead and say, nope. They're with me. They're vindicated. They're justified. 
They're pure. They're blameless. That has to sink in. Because when that sinks in, none of the other stuff that someone does to you can ever stick. So now when someone offends you, someone wrongs you, someone slights you, someone throws something, someone accusation at you, someone lies, whatever it is, you can, like Paul, don't even care. My vindication's coming. I'll be proven. I am just in the sight of my God. I am welcomed into his presence. And then you know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, all of that wrongdoing, all of that sin, all of that evil, no matter what has been done to you, no matter what has been done to you, there are no gaps in God's justice. None. It will either be sufficiently absorbed in the cross of Christ or it will be sufficiently answered when Jesus comes back to answer that. And so you can be free to turn the other cheek, to give your cloak, to go the second mile, knowing God's got it and my vindication is coming. Would you guys pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you for the promises that you have made to us in your word. The promise that Vengeance is yours, that we are free to go the second mile. We're free to turn the other cheek, precisely because what you have promised to do, and that is that you will uphold your justice. And God, we thank you that we do not need to prove ourselves, because you have proven our worth already in your Son. While we were enemies with you, you died for us. While we were at odds with you, you loved us, you sought us, you saved us, and you have secured us in your presence forever. And so, Holy Spirit, help us, like Paul, just echo him and say, whatever anyone does to us, it's a very small thing indeed compared to the declaration that you have spoken over us in your Son, in the Messiah, in the risen King, Jesus, who is vindicated and who will vindicate us. We love you. We praise you. We ask all of this in his matchless and glorious name.